Welcome to Native America Calling, I'm Sean Spruce. In the spirit of today's spooky significance, we'll hear bone-chilling tales from gifted storytellers. Coming up this hour, we'll dive into the world of scary spirits, creepy creatures, and odd observations from different corners of Native America. What scary stories have stayed with you over the years? What stories do you break out for Halloween? It's our special Halloween show today. We'll hear from storytellers right after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. A recent two-day meeting in Alaska revealed big federal budget shortfalls for marine mammals management in the state. Emily Schwing has more. The Indigenous Peoples Council for Marine Mammals, or IPCOM, meets twice a year. Scientists from federal agencies like the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and the National Marine Fisheries Service join members to discuss marine mammal populations and subsistence resources across Alaska. But IPCOM members say the federal agencies aren't doing enough. It, it's 100% a lack of funding um, and a lack of staffing on the government's part. Raven Cunningham manages a marine mammal program in a region of the state where a once-threatened sea otter population is now thriving. That's having big impacts on the shellfish people gather for food. Cunningham says stock assessments for subsistence resources and population surveys on Alaska's sea otters haven't happened in her region in over a decade. Our take as subsistence users, we can't look at how that's affecting the population or whether we need to take more or less. That was news to U.S. Senator Dan Sullivan. He says federal management agencies are supposed to be counting animals like sea otters regularly. Part of that is just their basic job. Right? But the Fish and Wildlife Service is supposed to be doing that already. Um, where the funding can be a little challenging is um, for these commissions. So you have the Alaska Eskimo Whaling Commission, you have the Walrus Commission, you have the Nanook Commission. IPCOM is made up of 18 marine mammals commissions and councils from across the state, and they all receive federal funding. Ben Payana sits on the Alaska Nanit Co-Management Council, which represents 15 Alaska Native tribes that harvest polar bears for subsistence. He says the group wants to create effective and cooperative management plans. If we don't have the funding to do it, we, we just can't. And that gets a little bit frustrating when we're meeting to serve a purpose, but then we can't fulfill our duties. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service declined to comment, but during IPCOM's meeting, a scientist with the agency said they were out of money for just about anything. He says any funds for things like population surveys and stock assessments in Alaska would have to come from Congress. In Anchorage, I'm Emily Schwing. A new data project in North Dakota shows native vote disparities when it comes to travel and cost to get to the polls. Mike Moen reports. The group North Dakota Native Vote teamed up with Joseph Robertson, a native data scientist on the initiative. The resulting interactive web feature factors in a range of sources, including census figures, recent gas prices, and available voting infrastructure. Robertson says they were able to estimate the costs and travel times for someone from certain tribal areas just to cast a ballot. He says the findings reveal real obstacles. We did a quick analysis through the Porcupine 
community on, on Standing Rock. And that trip to get to the post office of the courthouse in Fort Yates is about 60 miles round trip. When factoring in gas prices from the summer, the cost for the voting trip is more than $1,000 per 100 people. North Dakota Native Votes Executive Director Nicole Donaghy says they've been able to engage with some state agencies about voting access, but hopes the data turns more heads. Access to the ballot is not equitable for people living on reservations. Now, that also could apply to communities that are not on a reservation that are very rural. And so I think that the more knowledge that our officials have, the better. And Donaghy says the partnership brings data and important social matters together in a very productive way. That was Mike Moen and I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. November is National Epilepsy Awareness Month. Did you know one in 26 people will develop epilepsy during their lifetime? Call 1-800-332-1000 to learn more. The Epilepsy Foundation supports this show. Program support by Penguin Random House, publisher of Finding My Dance by Rhea Thundercloud, a picture book celebrating the author's journey from childhood powwows to professional dancing. More on this and other stories at prh.com slash stories of the land. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling, I'm Sean Spruce. What better day to listen to scary stories than Halloween? Do you remember hearing a traditional story that terrified you when you were younger? Does a particular scary story stick with you? In addition, almost everybody knows someone who has stories of unexplained noises, doors closing by themselves, or eerie voices in the distance. We'll hear about stories today with creatures, eeriness, and mystery. Just be warned, the chilling stories you're about to listen to may include ghosts and monsters. We have storytellers from Alaska to Hawaii to New York to the Southeast. We also want to hear from you. Do you have a short, scary story to share? Who are great storytellers in your family or your community? Let us know by calling 1-800-996-2848. You can also leave a comment on our social media pages. Our Twitter handle, 1-800-99-NATIVE. On the line in Salamanca, New York, is Leora White. She is a storyteller and is Seneca. Leora, welcome to our show, and happy Halloween. Happy Halloween. Thank you for having me here with you today. Nyawe, thank you. Absolutely, Leora. And tell us, how long have you been a storyteller? Okay, so this is my first year. Uh, my grandfather is Dwayne Deuce Bowen, and he was a well-known Seneca storyteller, and um, I'm picking up his legacy. I am learning his stories from the books that he has written, and I would like to carry on his legacies. Well, we would love to have you carry on your grandfather's legacy, this family tradition of storytelling, and I understand you have a scary story to share with us today. Oh, yes. So uh, stories are told among the Seneca people about a nocturnal creature 
and his name is Hagondo Des, and he is long nose. So Hello. this long nose, he um, they only speak of him around the children because his one and only purpose is to seek out children and to keep them off the streets and to keep them from misbehaving. Hmm. Geez, we could use a long nose in my house to keep my daughter in line, perhaps. Tell us more, <laughs> Leora. Okay. So in one of my granddad's books, A Few More Stories, he has uh, described a few short stories of uh, his family's, so like my great, great uncle's personal experience um, with long nose. So he wrote about uncle and long nose. And this happened one time. Okay. So. All right. Well, we've got about nine minutes before we have to take a break. Is that enough time to tell us the story of Long Nose? Absolutely. Let's get all into right. it. Go for it, Leora. It's all you. Thank you. So my granddad's uncle told him a story about a time when he was 13 years old. He said he got a little scared one night. And once fall evening, he was staying with his aunt and uncle at Cold Spring. And he liked it there because it was just above the river and he had a boat. So he would be by the boat all day long and forget about his chores at home. And when he wasn't getting into trouble here or there, he would be getting into trouble somewhere. And once he got caught swiping eggs from the hen coop and then he had to clean out the coop as a punishment. And then when he was finished, he forgot to lock the door and all the chickens got loose. Then he had to chase the chickens around and grandma called him to the back porch and told him to take a basket of stuff and a note to his auntie's house who lived down the road. And uncle asked if he could take a flashlight because it was dark when he was coming home. So auntie agreed and told him he can take a flashlight to be careful and to deliver this note. And so off he went and he went down to his auntie's and he gave his auntie the note and she took the basket and the note and she wrote something on it and then gave it back to him. And then also gave him two dimes for doing his chore. And so he was really excited to get two dimes because back then that was like $20. <laughs> so he took the, um, the basket and the note and he headed back to his auntie's house and those two dimes were burning a hole in his pocket. And he thought for a second he would go to the store, which was just a little ways down the road. And when he got there, all the lights were on and it was dark outside by now. So he got an ice cream bar, two Hershey bars, and some more candy. And then when he came outside, he decided to walk along a bridge. And so he stood on the bridge eating his candy and shining his flashlight at everything, he reached for the other candy bar and then it fell. So when he reached down to go pick it up, he looked up and there was a creature that had pale face and he was swooped over and he was had long hair dangling, slits for eyes, a small round mouth, and a long, thick nose dragging along the ground. And it looked like an elephant nose. It was making a blowing or a wheezing sound. And Uncle knew 
it was a hug bondes. He seemed like he was going to jump over the railing, and he took off as fast as he could. And Longnose was right behind him. And there was a path through the woods just at the end of the bridge, and Uncle turned onto it, and he felt a slap on his head. And he kept running, and then Longnose kept slapping him all over his body. But he couldn't see well enough in the dark, and he slammed full speed into the railing, and then he flew backward. And as he fell backward, Hagondes smashed full head first into him, and there were loud grounds, loud enough to be heard all over the place. And they both fell to the ground in a heap, and they just laid there together, and they were both heaving heavily, trying to catch their breath. In a few moments, they sat up together at the same time, and Uncle looked over at this creature. And suddenly, he felt no fear. And he spoke to the creature in a Seneca tongue. Ganone, are you okay? And Long Nose, rubbing his elbow, he says, Again, oh, oh, I am hurt. Oh, well, do you want to keep chasing me? <laughs> and Long Nose says, go home. And so Uncle got up to walk away, and Longno says, don't be bad, be good. And then Uncle stood up and walked away, and he went back home, and he went straight to bed because he didn't think the folks would believe that he had talked to Longnose that night. Daneho, so it is said. That is the story of Uncle and Longnose. Leora, that was wonderful. Wow. So Longnose, well, geez, that's kind of interesting. I mean, started out really scary, and then Longnose was kind of kind of humbled. But there's there's still what what do you think is the the biggest lesson there in that story? I'm interested in hearing your perspective. I think it's um, you know you've got to go do what you got to do. And then you get right home and you don't stay out too late. You don't take your time wandering around and doing what you're not supposed to be doing. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, I think, uh, yeah, long nose is quite humble and he's, he, he, um, yeah, I just, Personally, I'm thankful that I haven't seen a long nose in my own life experience. <laughs> <laughs> I am too, yeah. And when when you were telling me that there were two two dimes burning a hole in Uncle's pocket, for a second I thought they were actually burning. There was like a fire. <laughs> I thought that was going to be the story for me, like the, the fire, the, the burning dimes or something like that. But it was just a metaphor. And no, I really like that story. And I, you know what thing that I've learned like from Native stories and things like that is over the years is they have like kind of a different... You know, when I think of like the traditional mother goose nursery rhymes and things like that, they they, they all kind of have these very kind of happy endings and they're all kind of really cut and dry. But a lot of times the the native stories for our, our children, especially the older traditional ones, they're very nuanced and, they, and to listen to them from kind of a, a more colonized perspective, they kind of they kind of don't always kind of make sense. But when you really kind of listen and you pay more attention, they really do make a lot of sense, but they're really geared towards the way we are as native people and, and how we raise our children and things like that. So I really appreciate you sharing that, that beautiful, beautiful story. And um, so you've only been doing this for about a year and where all do you tell your stories? 
Um, yes. So I get invited over to the Seneca Nation Library and then also the Seneca National Iroquois Museum. So um, those have been a quite a popular location for me to be at. And what are your plans for this evening, Halloween? Oh, I'm going to take my two kids trick-or-treating, and I cannot wait. Are you going to dress up like Long Nose? I'm going to dress up as Princess Leia, and then my boy's going to be Mandalorian, and my little baby girl's going to be Grogu. <laughs> All right, awesome. So you're there in Salamanca. Do you do uh, a lot of trick-or-treating there in Salamanca, still going door-to-door? Oh, Absolutely. Yeah, I like that. I, I'm a big fan of just old school trick or treating, and I've been to Salamanca a couple of times. You've got some some of those older historic homes. They they'd be uh, they're they're they've got a very kind of Halloween vibe to them, don't you think? Yeah, absolutely. And um, the city's got some fun events planning or planned for um, before trick or treating. We're all gonna like meet up, and uh, they got like some big. Um, like show in the city. So it's, it's exciting. The city's really coming together and we get well, a Halloween spirit. It sounds like a wonderful evening plan there in Salamanca, New York. Thank you for joining us. Leora White, a Seneca storyteller. Folks, if you want to share a scary story or anything Halloween related, give us a call. 1-800-996-2848. We'll be right back. Numerous studies show indigenous people in Mexico are more likely to face discrimination, poverty, and other setbacks. The Mexican government does not officially recognize or support indigenous people. We'll hear some indigenous perspectives on tribal relations with the Mexican government and the challenges people face on a daily basis. That's on the next Native America Calling. Did you know more than 51,000 Native and Indigenous people are living with epilepsy in the United States? Epilepsy is a neurological disorder that causes recurring, sudden, unprovoked surges of abnormal electrical activity in the brain. Call 1-800-332-1000 to get information and resources. Help someone you know by learning seizure first aid at epilepsy.com slash first aid. The Epilepsy Foundation supports this show. Thank you for listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We have storytellers joining us this hour to share their favorite scary story. If you want to chime in with your own scary tale, join us. 1-800-996-2848 is our number. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Let's continue hearing from our storytellers today. And we've got a call ready already. We have Glenn listening on KUNM in Hamas Springs, New Mexico. Glenn, happy Halloween. Well, same to you. Thank you, and happy Day of the Dead. Uh, I was a uh, hospital chaplain in Albuquerque, 1981, and I was called up to the ICU. Got up there, and the staff was freaked, and I said, what's going on? And they said, well, this Navajo uh, Diné boxer, uh, his family is uh, demanding that we open a window in this uh, room where the uh, person was. Uh, the maintenance guy got up there, opened the window, and immediately 
the ventilator on its own shut down and seemed to me the spirit of this uh, damn boxer needed to have that freedom. And it said to me, we humans are not in charge of what happens on this earth. Ooh, Glenn, really, really interesting story there to share. Appreciate you calling in, Glenn, so much. Folks, once again, that number to call, 1-800-996-2848, if you have any stories related to Halloween to share. Joining us now from Hawaii is Lapaka Kapanui. He is a storyteller, author, cultural practitioner, and founder of the Ghost Tour Mysteries of Hawaii. He is Kanaka Omali. Welcome to Native America Calling, Lapaka, and happy Halloween to you as well. Oh, happy Halloween, and good morning. <laughs> <laughs> well, Lapaka, you know, storytelling, it's such a gift, such an art. What's the secret to telling just a really good story? The secret to telling a really good story is, first, you must be a really good listener. <laughs> <laughs> listening to the stories, listening to other stories, and just kind of perfecting the craft. How, how long have you been telling stories? Um, for what I do business-wise, uh, it's been 30 years, but I've been around storytellers since I was a kid. And during my childhood, you know, children were supposed to be asleep at a certain hour. And this is why it would get in trouble with my parents all the time, because I'd crawl under the, the kitchen table and just sit there and wait for the the adults to gather and start sharing stories. And basically, that's how I picked it up. Well, tell us more <clears throat> about these ghost tours that you lead there, Mysteries of Hawaii. It was actually a business I inherited from my boss after he passed away in 2003. And he actually came here from uh, Culver City in California in the early 70s. And because of what happened to him, uh, that piqued his curiosity and interest in ghosts and spirits in Hawaii. And he developed the first ghost tour in 1974. <clears throat> but the entire time he'd been doing that, up until he passed it on to me, uh, I remember him telling me he, he felt like that even though he was not Hawaiian, you know, not from the islands, that he was purposely put here you know, in order to prepare the way for, he said, either a local or a native Hawaiian to take it over and start doing it. And I always thought he was referring to my older cousin, uh, uh, Keone, who's a well-known cultural practitioner. So I had no idea it was going to end up being me. So you took upon this responsibility to to lead these ghost tours. And how does it work? Do you nightly, do you meet at a certain location and, and take people on a walking tour of, of parts of Hawaii? Yeah. I mean, it's gotten to the point now where it's not, even though it's officially advertised as a tour, it's really an experience. <laughs> That's mm -hmm. the only way I can describe it because it's not just about um, sharing history and stories of spirits, but it also happens to be about the kind of people who show up. And so okay. what people bring with them spiritually, uh, their energy determines what happens and if the spirits want to interact or they don't. Well, Lapaka, let's hear one of these stories that you tell on your Mysteries of a Hawaii Ghost Tour. There's a, a, a gentleman who used to own a, a tour company here, and we became really good friends. And he arrived here in the 70s uh, from Boston. And the first thing he wanted to do when he got here was just acclimate himself to the culture and, you know, learn the Hawaiian language, uh, learn Hawaiian spirituality, just 
everything about us. He wanted to immerse himself, and this was in the early 70s. And so by the late 70s, early 80s, he opened his own tour company, took people around around the island. And there's this one place in central Honolulu called uh, Kapena Falls. It's these beautiful waterfalls with this really nice big pond. And locals go there, tourists go there all the time. And that was one of the stops. But what he would do is he would park the tour van in the parking lot first and then walk out to the falls to make sure everything was safe, uh, you know, no troublemakers. Then he'd go back to the van and bring the people in. So on one of these mornings, he told me, same routine, parked the van, told the people he'd be a couple of minutes. And he went out to the falls and he said it was beautiful, serene, waters calm. Except he saw a little Hawaiian girl sitting on the edge of the pond and laying next to her was what he assumed to be the girl's father. But it's just this Hawaiian man laying on his back and he's got his arm over his eyes and looks like he's sleeping. And a little girl sitting next to him with her makeshift fishing pole. And as he approaches closer, he notices she's crying, like pitifully crying. <laughs> he says, oh, oh, baby, what's, what's the matter? Why are you crying? And she says, I can't catch any fish. Really? What kind of fish are you trying to catch? And she looks at my, my friend, Steve, and she says, I'm trying to catch moi. There's supposed to be moi. And my friend tells a little Hawaiian girl, oh, um, honey, there's no moi in this pond. There, there never has been. And she says, no, there, there was. I caught a couple and I ate it. And I'm trying to catch more, but now I can't catch anything. And she's crying more pitifully. And so my friend says it's kind of heartbreaking. And he says, you know, honey, maybe it's maybe you're using the wrong bait. What kind of bait are you using to catch your fish? And he said that little Hawaiian girl stood up and the fishing pole in one hand, and she sort of reaches out and grabs the fishing line and slowly wraps it around her hand and finally brings the bait out of the water. And my friend said, on the hook are two human eyes. Oh, and he was sort of stunned and he took a couple of steps back and so she holds it up to him and she says I'm using this for bait and he happens to look behind her at the man who's lying on the ground who he assumes is her father and that's when he notices his hands his arm isn't covering his face anymore it's sort of like to his side and he sees the eye sockets are empty his eyes are gone and he said, within seconds, this little Hawaiian girl drops her fishing pole and dives into the pond. And just before she reached, uh, dives into the water, he says, this little Hawaiian girl reaches back, grabs that fully grown adult man by his shirt collar and drags him into the pond with her. And he said he remembers it was complete silence. He doesn't remember feeling the wind. He could see it doing it. And... There's this strong metallic odor, which he would re realize later was blood. And then across the pond, he said, the little girl surfaces, but it's just her eyes above the surface of the water. And now she's slowly swimming toward him. And he's so struck with terror that he can't move from the spot, even though he's trying. The second she's about to get close and climb out of the pond, from behind him, he hears, Hey! And he turns around, and, and it's his, his tour group that were in the van, but now they're behind him. And they said, you know, you're taking too long. You're gonna, are we going to do this or what? He says, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. He said, you know, 
maybe not today. I'll take you to another call somewhere else. And he said ever since that day, whenever he had to go to the other side of the island, because there's only two ways to go, and that's the path through those falls and another path. And so from that day on, he never went through the path that went by the falls. It was always the other one. And he said, my entire life, I just kept avoiding it. And he said, you know, I'm so much about learning the Hawaiian language and getting into the culture. He said, but you know, that experience, he said, helped me realize that there's still more I need to know. Mm. He realized he had, had to understand who the Hawaiian people were spiritually and what sort of gods and deities they believed in and how it moved with them through their daily life. Lapaka, I am thoroughly terrified, and I don't blame your friend one bit for not going down that one trail again. But it's really, that's a really profound story, and, and obviously your friend learned from that and just the understanding of how complex the Hawaiian culture is and, and just how he essentially had just barely scratched the surface, I guess. So, wow, wow, that is really, really, really uh a powerful story, Lapaka. And um, tell us more about your Halloween today. It must be a busy day for you. Actually, Halloween is our yearly family tradition. So we take off, and myself, my wife, and our adult kids, and our 14 grandkids, <laughs> we all dress up in costume, and we, we spend Halloween together as a family. Well, Lapaka, I just wish you all the the very best Halloween this year, and thank you again for joining us and sharing that wonderful, wonderful story. We have another guest on the line now. Joining us again is Nancy Fields. She is the director and curator at the Museum of the Southeast American Indian at the University of North Carolina at Pembroke. She is Lumbee. Nancy, welcome back to the show, and happy Halloween to you as well. Thank you. Same to you. I'm glad to be back. Nancy, why do we love scary stories so much? I mean, doesn't it kind of fly in the face of common sense? Why do people seek fear? That is a great question. Um, I think people love the adrenaline rush. We know that um, there's a part of us when we're scared, it releases endorphins. So even though we're terrified, there's uh, kind of this enjoyable feeling that we get, which is why we love horror movies and haunted houses and ghost stories and things like that. Um, but I think we also like to come close to the unknown, the scary parts of, of how and why we exist and kind of the things that really can't be explained. And also, as we know, sometimes life can get mundane, and this kind of understanding ghost stories or scary stories gives us a little bit more meaning to life and our existence as human beings. And I think it's also part of our truth, right? There are things that we don't understand or that um, go beyond exist in the supernatural that then, as Native peoples, become part of our culture and identity, just like we've heard about today. Um, so in essence, this is, in reality, a part of who we are. Mm. Nancy, we've got about five minutes before we have to take a break. Is that enough time for you to share a good scary story from Lumbee Country? It is indeed. Well, please. <laughs> the microphone is yours, Nancy. We're listening. 
Thank you. Well, in Lumbee country, we have our fair share of witches and ghosts and glowing orbs that we call jack-o'-lanterns and all kinds of unexplained things. And people even do uh, crazy things like money hunting where the money is uh, possessed and it moves from place to place and there are certain codes around how to go after it. But probably one of the most sensational um, things, for lack of better words, that we have are called hellcats. And so to understand Hellcats, it helps a little bit to understand the environment. So we are deep in the swamps of North Carolina. We sit right on the South Carolina line, and we aren't just in the middle of one swamp. There's about seven or eight swamps that kind of hedge in um, the Lumbee community. And in this environment, there are all different kinds of animals. And traditionally, in addition to alligators, we also have black panthers. And so... A lot of people have thought maybe that Hellcats were Black Panthers or an evolution of a Black Panther. We're not for sure, but that kind of gives you a, a description of what this beast uh, could potentially look like. Um, and so I'm going to share a quick story about my brother who was deer hunting, and it was this time of year. And my brother, uh, this time, he was about 18 years old. He was a big, tough guy. He didn't believe in anything. And, you know, we kind of we grow up hearing these stories. And, uh, you know, they serve as cautionary tales about how to conduct yourself in the swamps, you know, how to be out in the woods, not to be by yourself, to be careful, what time of day. And so he didn't believe in any of that, right? He, he was big, six-foot-three, tall guy. Nothing scared him at all. And so... Um, he went hunting, deer hunting, and it was a chilly afternoon. It was at dusk, and it was just starting to, like, have this light mist, this rain. And he even questioned, he was out there with his uncle, if they should be deer hunting and sitting in a deer stand. But they thought they'd give it a couple hours, and they would uh, go ahead and try. So there was this deer stand, deer stand way deep in the woods, that he insisted on going to. And his uncle said, you know, I don't think you should go that far out. You know, I'm going to, I want to do this other side over here by this clear up and field where the deer are going to come out and eat. And Chris said, no, I want to be over here by the water because the deer are going to come out here and they're going to go over there by that water and they're going to eat and drink over there. I feel like I have a better chance. But this deer stand was way, way high up in this cypress tree. And Chris was a big dude and he had never been in the that deer stand before. And his uncle said, are you sure you can get way up there? And he said, oh, yeah, I can get up there. So he gets up there, and the whole time he was thinking, I probably shouldn't be doing this. Like, this is the highest I've ever been up in a tree. You know, he was a little bit nervous, and the deer stand was just kind of suspended on the on the edge of the tree. Someone had made it years ago. But he did it, right? He's 18, and he's invincible. So he gets up there, and this really heavy fog starts to settle in on the landscape. And instead of it just kind of going to the ground, it's just kind of covering this from, like, sky to the floor. It's just kind of filled in the space. And now he's starting to see, to see instead of the, the, the swamp and the river running and the trees, now everything is just kind of in shadow, and he really can't make out what's going on. So he's sitting there, and he's looking for deer. And all of a sudden, he smells this really horrific smell. And he thought, what in the world is that? Now, swamps have been known to have this really kind of strong odor. Um, but this was different. This kind of smelled like decaying flesh, kind of a wet animal. He couldn't kind of figure it out. And while he's trying to process what this smell is, he hears this growl just behind him. And then it comes a little bit closer. 
he knew this was bad. And he kind of looks over his shoulder and he catches a glimpse of this like yellow glow that's just sitting in the mist, right? And then this growl is coming closer and he turns around and there's a hellcat facing him on the branch just above him in this cypress tree. He is terrified. He scrambles to get to the other side of the tree where these little ladders have been nailed into the tree, just where the cat is. And the cat is like looking down on him. Now, this cat, he said, was about the size of a bear. This was not even the size of a panther. It was huge. And its teeth were gnarling. And it had this really strong muscular face and muscular body. And its eyes were glowing yellow. And as he looks at it, he's trying to scramble around. If he falls out of this tree way, way up there, he knew he was going to break a limb. So he scrambles down. Well, as he does, the the hellcat jumps over to the next limb where he was, and then Chris loses his footing, and he grabs the tree, and then he ends up kind of sliding down and falling down. Nancy, I'm sorry. We're going to have to go to break. Waka. Domestic violence is not traditional. Contact your local Indian health care provider. Call 1-800-318-2596 or visit www.healthcare.gov slash SEP dash list slash hashtag domestic abuse. Learn about special enrollment periods available for survivors of domestic abuse. A message from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. You're listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We still have time for storytellers to share their favorite stories. The number to join the conversation, 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Before break, we were listening to Nancy Fields, and she's in North Carolina. Nancy, you were telling us this scary story. Your brother was deer hunting. He's up in a tree stand. He encounters a hellcat, and he begins sliding down the trunk, and that's where we had to leave off. So please continue this fascinating story. Okay. So he gets down to the ground, and he starts running, and he's next to the water, so the ground is real boggy. It's real muddy, right? So he feels like he can't run as fast as he wants to run. And then he realizes that in the thick canopy above the swamp, The hellcat is running from limb to limb to limb above him, gnarling and growling and screeching at him. And these glowing eyes are peering down at him through the fog. And he keeps running, and he's a little bit disoriented and can't figure out where the truck is. And he keeps going. And then the hellcat gets in front of him up in the canopy of the trees. And then he faces my brother. And then he looks at him. And right when he's getting ready to leap down, my uncle fires a shot. And he says, get over here. And then he grabs him and he kind of pulls him to the left and he pulls him out of that thicket real fast into the um, into the opening of a field. My brother falls on his back and he's terrified and he's breathing really hard and he's actually crying and he's just terrified. And my uncle said, I told you this is why you don't go deep into that swamp like that. These things will get you. And then they could hear this hellcat wrestling around, jumping from limb to limb inside of the swamp. And then he gives out this loud screech that echoes throughout the landscape. And then they both take off running and they get in the truck and they go back and they never, ever go back to that spot again um, to go deer hunting. And the story goes that my brother didn't believe in any of those things before. The one thing that he did believe in that he would stand behind were hellcats. 
jeez. <laughs> Nancy, this could be a movie. I mean, it just it's so the way you describe it, it's so visual and just so um does your brother still go deer hunting now? He doesn't. It's Alec, my brother has passed on, but he kept that story for years and in fact he kinda discouraged his his son from, from deer hunting. He's like, You don't you don't need to do that down there. It's okay. Maybe dove hunting would be better. <laughs> a different time of year, a different time of day. <laughs> yeah. Jeez, well, that was another good one for sure, for sure. Folks, uh, still time to join the conversation. If you've got a scary story to share, 1-800-996-2848. Nancy, Halloween this evening, what do you have planned? Uh, going to give out candy to the kids, going to have a bonfire, cooking out, and just having a good time. Anybody that wants to stop by is free to come, come share and hang out. All righty. Well, you have a very, very happy Halloween this evening. And thank you again for, for sharing just another really scary story about uh, uh, things that we just don't quite understand. Let's just leave it at that. We've got another guest on the line now joining us from Juneau, Alaska, Ishmael Hope. He is a poet, storyteller, and indigenous scholar. He is Tlingit and Anupiak. Ishmael, welcome back to Native America Calling and happy Halloween to you as well. All right. Yeah. Thanks so much for inviting me. Absolutely. Ishmael, what inspires you to tell stories? Well, uh, my mom was a storyteller. She was a Nupap, and my dad spent all kinds of time around the elders. And I learned to share in front of an audience stories from a man named Brett Dillingham. He's a really terrific storyteller here in the area. And since then, I've been just studying and, and learning and learning and learning the language, the Clinket language, and just spending time with elders. And you're talking earlier about the, the, the power and the excellence and the craft of storytelling. And that's so much there. And it's, it's in abundance, just like with the visual arts, the oral literary arts is like nothing else in the world. Mm, yeah, well, well spoken, well said, Ishmael. And I understand you have a, a story to share with us today. Tell us a little bit about the story. Set us up, please. Yeah, this this story, it's going to be a shortened version of it, of the uh, Kushta Kwani, or sometimes the Kushta Paz, what it's called, the land otter tribe or people. And... It, it's a very uh, popularly known subject, but I think less understood. It's, it can be sensationalized. So I, speaking about it, I have a little bit of, I, I want to make sure that people recognize that, on, especially on a day like Halloween, of course we want to tell these spooky stories. We have these anxiety projections and that kind of thing. But for us, it's uke utira. We want to we want to make sure that no harm is is done. Uh, we want to make sure that people watch for their thoughts. And when you speak about these 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 are uh, spirits and spirits that we still believe Yesu Katuhain, we still believe in it. And it's Sakasi Ut taboo thing Igwa Ut. But um, even with that, as long as people have yad wune, respect for it, then we can enjoy it. Uh, the, the way that the elders tell the stories, 
Uh, this one comes from people like Cypec, my great 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 uh, my great great uncle uh, Andrew Wanamaker, Robert Zuboff Shadok, who is an elder that my father spent a lot of time with in Angoon. Well, Ishmael, thank you for for setting that up, and and I really appreciate you you explaining to our listeners to be in that right frame of mind, and and when we talk about topics like this, and today is a a fun show, but it's also a serious show in many ways, and uh, appreciate that. So please now tell us this fascinating story. Right on. Ah, uh, there are many things that happen to us, those who are Kiksadi out in Sitka. Ya ka ka hua. Ah, hesushke wedushat tundatani. This man, ka ka, his wife, though, had bad thoughts about him. Achaya kushta sita tasiwe. You are you. You you ye ausi ne dubuknach. That's why he put the landaughter tail sinew through his ears. Chakowe you guk adiawe ye 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 dusnednuch. Shakata kakainkin. Long time ago, the people would put the um, earrings through their ears, uh, both men and women. But with that kushta thikta tussi, that caused problems. That that allowed the spirits of the kushta kwani to overtake this man kaka and. So he he would go out. Tika ayanu kuch. He'd go out for yellow cedar, yellow cedar bark, because they would make grass mats. They would make baskets. There's so many uses from tea, tea woody, the yellow cedar bark. And he'd go behind Mount Edgecombe. And, but with that kushta sitta tussi, hesushke du tundatani, ksayi dain, adeye, ye tu tiye. He felt strange. There was something wrong with his thoughts. So we'd go out there. And one of the things that happened as he was, he'd have, back then we didn't have iron or steel or metal, just copper. So they would use like a spear that they would put in the fire that could be stronger even than steel after putting it in the fire, hardening it in the fire. And so that's what he would use to cut the, the bark off. And as he was working on this, he saw his wife. His wife was there behind him. 
And then so she said to him, You've been out there for so long working on that tea, that yellow cedar bark. And so my food, the food that I'm cooking is spoiling already. And then he looked at her. He knew that it wasn't his wife. He threw his spear at her. That's why he threw his spear at her. And then she ran away and turned back into the kushta running away from him because he knew that something was wrong. And so I'll just go to the part after this and finish it here, where as he was trying to make his way home, where his mind was just off and wrong, he's in his canoe and he's paddling and it's behind Cloak at this point. Cloak Ika. And as he's paddling on the shores, he sees some people. And so he he uh, parks there with his canoe on the beach there. And so he sees though a yao fikin du art uh he recognized, though, there was his auntie that was right there. And it was many years, it was a long time that she had disappeared. Now, what we call it is we call when the Kushta Kwani, take the people. We call it Kushta Kwani Haswu Sine. what? And it, it translates as the Kushta Kwani saved the woman, even though it's, it's not considered a good thing. That's just one of the words that we have for it. And so he sees the auntie, his auntie. And his auntie says, His auntie said to him, My poor nephew, my poor nephew. It was your wife. It was your wife that pulled the land out or sinew through your ears. Come down closer to me. Come to me. Come closer to me so then I can, I can pull out. I can pull out. The kushta fitta tussi from your ears, 
And it was just right then after that, that all the things that have been bothering his mind, all of his grief, all of his bad thoughts, it came out of him just right then, and his mind cleared up, and he was ready to go home. So he made his way home, and that's where I'm saying I'm giving you the shorter version of this. He's one of the, maybe the only recorded person who returned to human form after being taken by the land otter people. Yukaka, yewesh kasni, gunachi shaya, gunachi shiim kakwasni, ge, achtuyak eh, su plakatas, hastush kasni, ge aya. And that's the story about Kaka. Thank you for allowing me to share this story. And thanks to all the other storytellers. They're wonderful stories. We have a phrase called That just means that was a beautiful story. That that it was great to hear that. And to think and thanks to everyone as well for for listening Ishmael thank you that that was a very beautiful story that, that you just told as well and how long have you been telling that story well I this one's actually I don't I don't tell it too much um, because it's got I mean I'm feeling it right now actually um, from the beliefs mm-hmm. um, of the powers of the story the spirits we call on the spirits to bring balance so that no harm will, will be done, which is almost like saying that no, no explosions will happen, you know, almost in, in that realm, explosions of spirit or, or negativity um, or bad spirits spreading those. Um, okay. So I, well, I don't tell it that often, well, um, appreciate but you. it's a story I've been learning for a while. Okay, and, and we sure do appreciate you sharing it here today. Uh, a special treat, a, a story that is not often shared by Ishmael Hope. Folks, we have reached the end of the show, so let me thank our guest today, Leora White, Lopaka Kapanui, Nancy Fields, and Ishmael Hope for sharing some scary tales and insights this Halloween. Join us tomorrow as we check in on the status of Indigenous people in Mexico. Happy Halloween. I'm Sean Spruce. This Native American Heritage Month, remember, one in three Native American adults have high blood pressure. Check it at your nearest community health center. If the numbers are above 120 over 80, talk to a healthcare professional. Native community well-being is very important. You can take action by visiting heart.org slash HBP control. This support provided in partnership with HHS slash OMH and HRSA under cooperative agreements CPIMP 2112-27 and CPIMP 2112-28. Services.
Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davids. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.